Let's open up to uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 through 13, as we close out the Lord's Prayer, but continue in the Sermon on the Mount. Obviously, we will be taking a break next week. Um, I'll be preaching on Good Friday and Sunday on a beautiful event in the life of the church. Hope you come out and hope you bring your friends. I'll be giving a simple message of hope, asking the Holy Spirit to raise us from the dead. But now we end in a good spot, I think, the end of the Lord's Prayer, specifically verse 13. As you're turning there, um, I want to talk about my daughter for the first time ever. Just because I'm so excited. Brianna went on uh, the women's retreat for reality, took Jude, left Abby with me, which means a weekend of ice cream. uh, And that's it. (laughs) It's hard to compete with mom, so I'm trying to pull out the big cannons, trying to get on my daughter's good side. You know what I'm saying? Uh, But she's been in this fun stage. And all of this has a point, just so you know. But she's been in this fun stage where she's just been talking a lot, you know, and specifically talking in a spiritual sense, like talking about God and talking about church. And like she typically gets up on Sunday and she's like, I want to go to church and I want to play with toys. And she'll name like some kids that she goes to uh, the nursery uh, to Sunday school with. And specifically this last couple of weeks, she's been saying some funny things. Like, I don't know where she learned this, but she came up to me one day and she's all, Daddy, you're a pastor? And I said, Yeah. She's all, Jesus pushed you? And I was all, what do you mean? She's all, Jesus pushed you. And I was like trying to figure out what she meant. I'm all, what do you mean? Like Jesus is pushy? Or Jesus like pushed me into a pastoral role? And she just looks at me with a smile. She's all, Jesus pushed you. (laughs) Okay, I'm a pastor. Jesus pushed me. And she said that one day uh, as I was like tucking her into bed. This is recently, a couple weeks. And I tucked her in bed. She said the whole thing. She's like, you're faster. Jesus pushed you. And I'm like, okay, okay. And then she starts to settle down. And then in the quietness of her breath, she, she looks at me. And under her breath, she, she says, God loves you, Daddy. And that's what I did. My heart just sunk. And I was like, it was actually a, a particular day where I just, kind of needed to hear that you know I just didn't know I was going to hear it from a two and a half year old and so she she looks at me she says God loves you daddy and I was like oh yeah yeah he does huh wow that is so good thanks for telling me that and I turned it around on her and I was all do you you know God loves you do you know God loves you baby she's all yeah (laughs) and so I kept going it was getting really good and I'm all do you love God? God loves you. Do you love God? She's all, no. <laughs> so after I, I picked myself up off the floor, I, I kind of regained my composure, and I was like, well, well, why? I mean, you just said God loves me, loves dad, he loves mom, loves your brother, loves you, he's so good to us. I just went through this list, and I'm all, but I, shouldn't you, like, you love God too because he loves you so much? Do you love God? No. I'm all, well, why? She says, I love Olaf. <laughs> I love Olaf, daddy. St-
stupid snowman. (laughs) Things don't always go the way you plan. (laughs) Things don't always go the way you plan. Starting... (laughs) I'm starting to find that a lot of things don't go the way that I plan. Now, that's an example of something, you know, it's hardly bad. It's rather cute. You know, it's a two-and-a-half-year-old. What else do we expect? She loves Olaf. She loves all things Disney. But life is filled with types of things like that. Life just doesn't quite work out the way that you want. Now, while some instances are cute on the scale of things that don't work out the way that you want, others are more of a nuisance. Perhaps others are more miserable. In fact, we could probably build our own scale of misery, accumulating and and accounting for all the things that we go through. I'm sure we would find things just peppering that scale. There was an entomologist decades ago by the name of uh, Justin Schmidt uh, who put it upon himself to categorize the level of pain that was the result of every type of insect sting known to man. And so he pulled out a journal and began to jot down, well, first he allowed like a number of different insects, I think 78 of the most poisonous insects in the, in the world to sting him like on the arm, and he would begin to journal what that was like. Now, some of you journal what you ate for breakfast. He was like, got stung by a tarantula hawk today and started to pass out and blacked out. On to the next one. <laughs> And so as a result of this, he developed what was called the Schmidt Pain Index Scale, where he categorizes some of the most painful insect stings known to man. He has like the top 10. By the way, the most painful insect sting in the world is a bullet ant. Don't worry about it. It's not in California. Nothing bad is in California. (laughs) Stay here. We need something like that. We need... We need a Schmidt pain index level of misery for the things that we go through. Some things are nothing, you know, just like his little scale. Some things, it stings you and you don't even recognize it. Perhaps you even laugh, you know, Abby's little quip. I laughed. I thought it was cute. But it's not so cute when your, your kid is 16 and says the same thing. Not that I love Olaf, but <laughs> that I, I don't love God. Or when they're 24 and... They're not, you know, they're not living the way that you envisioned. It starts to creep up the scale. Perhaps your marriage is on the rocks. You went into it, someone that you were in love with, and it's, it's falling apart. You're halfway up or maybe even farther up the pain, the, the pain index scale of misery, saying, well, this, is, this isn't even a nuisance anymore. This is, a, this is heartbreaking. Maybe it's your community. Maybe it's your finances. Maybe it's your family is hurting deeply. Maybe your friend stabbed you in the back. Maybe your health is deteriorating. Maybe it has something to do with your work or your personal happiness. I mean, we could go on and on, right, pulling that out. But we have a a misery index, and we have these life experiences that fill that. Some of them maybe aren't too bad, but maybe for some of you, you've, you got stung by a bullet ant. 
And while we're regularly faced with tests, perhaps some of you are going through something that is so painful, it is so miserable, it is so deep that it's even questioning your beliefs in God. Maybe it's really putting your trust in God to the test. Maybe you're going through something or you've gone through something that is really causing you, in all honesty, to say, is God really that good? Is he really that benevolent? Maybe you're even questioning God himself. If God existed, surely he wouldn't allow you to go through something like that. You, you, have, a, you have a pain index. You've gone through trials. I want this morning to offer you satiating and healing words of Jesus, specifically in the form of a prayer that is so couched to be like a net that can catch your fall. You in a crisis today? I have a prayer for you to pray. That's in verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And going through some fire in life, this is a prayer for you. But before you pray it, before it lands on your lips, I want it to marinate in your heart for a bit. When Jesus tells us to pray, lead us not into temptation, I don't know if you've ever read, I've read this before with a, a faint flavor of confusion because you you essentially feel like you're asking God not to tempt you, which seems like something God already wouldn't do. In fact, we often perhaps think of that verse in James chapter one where we're told that he does not do that type of thing. I just wanna read it uh, right now. I think it's in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. And so we kind of intuitively know that, that God wouldn't do that to us. He wouldn't tempt us. So why then are we asking him not to do the very thing that we trust he's not gonna do? And this has a little bit. I'm just gonna spend a couple minutes explaining this text before I get to drive it deep into our hearts and life experience. So it really matters that we know what he's saying. So I hope you bear with me for a couple minutes. There's really a, a few different ways that the word Jesus used, temptation, can be used. It has a, a little bit of a range of semantic nuance. Uh, and this is, this is no different than English words that we use. You know, if I were to tell you uh, something about a trunk, well, what kind of trunk am I speaking of? There's a number of different ways we could, uh, we could uh, understand the word trunk. It could mean the back of your car. It could mean a suitcase, right? It could mean the trunk of a tree. It could even mean the nose of an elephant. Right there, already four different nuances, four different, very, uh, very different meanings. And yet no one in here ever struggles with understanding what someone else means when we use the word trunk. Why? Because of context. Even if I were at the zoo, looking face to face at the nose of an elephant, and my wife said to me, as she often does, can you grab the diaper bag from the trunk? I know she wouldn't be talking about the nose of an elephant. <laughs> right? Context. I know what she means. It's the same way with the Bible. There's sometimes words that have a rich range of meaning, and all you have to do is plug it into the context and see how it works. And it turns out James uses the word temptation to speak specifically about what we usually envision when we talk about temptation, right? Being tempted to sin. 
being provoked to sin, something God will never do to you. He'll never provoke you to sin. In fact, James tells us where that type of temptation comes from and where sin is born when he goes on to say, God doesn't do it, but each person, verse 14, is tempted, there's that word, when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, give birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So right there, we have a usage of the word temptation, which means to be seduced to sin, and that, James tells us, comes from the heart. It's something that Satan takes advantage of. God doesn't do it, it comes from the heart. But when Jesus uses the word temptation, he uses another nuance that comes up, where it speaks not of being seduced to sin, but more akin to a trial. A trial or a time of testing. Ever been through one of those? It's something that really proves or examines or puts the fire to the feet of someone's trust in God. A great example of this, Abraham and Isaac, where the word actually uh, for test actually comes up. And that God actually allows us to go through. He won't seduce us to sin, but he will bring us through difficult situations. So now, it's in that context that Jesus tells us to pray. Hey, ask God to spare us of these moments of trials and testing. That seems to be where Jesus is, uh, uh, is starting to go. But that, right, if you've even lived longer than two minutes, brings up another difficulty. We go through trials, We go through difficult situations all the time, it seems like. And God doesn't seem to deliver us out of those, does he? Now, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. There might be hundreds of trials that he actually spares us from that you would never know. Maybe you'll never know until you see him face to face. But we don't know about those. Our human felt needs and experiences focus on the things we are going through. And let's just be honest. Our life isn't a cakewalk. We go through really difficult stuff, right? Some of you are going through trials right now. I've heard of them. I'm hearing of them. We go through hard stuff, and we could say with honesty, God isn't taking me out of those trials. In fact, the Bible actually tells us to expect trials. You ever seen those passages? Here's my favorite. Apostle Peter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trials when they come upon you to test you. There's all the words we've been using right there. Don't be surprised when that happens. As though something strange were happening to you. The apostle Peter is saying, hey, when uh, hard times come, when tests and trials of all different situations uh, on the full range of the pain index scale arrive at your doorstep, don't think that you're weird or that you've sinned and God is upset with you or that you're this anomaly. That is the normal Christian life. There's gonna be some hard stuff in life. So this might be causing you to ask, you know, what's the relevance of praying the Lord's Prayer, especially that last line? Why pray not to be led into times of testing when the Bible tells me to expect times of testing? And I think this is where the the last half of the verse gives us some deep clarification. Jesus says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is often called, one scholar calls this a a, a parallelism. It's like a Hebrew device where it's almost like a 
a form of poetry, even though this isn't poetry, where the second line kind of explains the first line. What does Jesus mean by, being, uh, by not being led into temptation? Well, he means uh, being delivered from specifically the schemes of the devil. It's a prayer to deliver us from the schemes of the devil within those trials that we will find ourselves in. It's to spare us from his purposes and intent with the things that you're going through. Do you know that the devil has schemes for you? We live in a world that doesn't like to think about such things. We, we're very familiar and comfortable with what is natural and what can be seen with eyes and smelt with the nose and, and, and discovered with the senses but the Bible speaks very vividly about a spiritual realm. Paul tells us uh, in Ephesians, I believe chapter six, that the devil has schemes and that we do not fight against flesh and blood, but that we fight against principalities, powers, rulers, and spirits of the darkness of this world. That's a, another way of saying demons and the devil. That in this life, it's not just you and what you see that's natural. You live in a realm. There's a conflict of heavenly kingdoms. God's gonna win, he's already won, amen? But there's still a battle and you find yourself in that battle. Now, this isn't to show us, you know, that it's not to cause us to be like demon hunters, like finding demons under every rock, you know, I have a headache this morning, demons. <laughs> well, it's not a demons, you just drink too much coffee, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I got a speeding ticket today, demons! <laughs> no, you just need to slow down, bro, like, you know? Not everything is caused by the devil. Some of it is caused by our own fault. Like we must take responsibility for what we've done. Other times it's the world in which we live, which is contrary to the things of God. We, we've talked about this a, a lot. But there's also a devil, and there's also spiritual fallen angels that want to wreak havoc on creation, and their entire bent is to destroy what God created for his good. One of the ways that we do that uh, that they do that, not we do that, but that the devil and his demons do that according to the scriptures is to use, is to scheme, using things to destroy you, specifically to destroy your faith in God. Something the devil has been doing since the dawn of creation. Wasn't it in the garden where through the serpent the devil spoke, Lucifer spoke to Eve and said, did God really tell you that? First thing that the devil does to humanity is try to cast doubt on God's goodness, on his truth, on his love. Try to distort what we think of him. He's been doing that ever since. And he's doing that to some of you right now. He's trying to make you doubt God through the trials that you're going through. And Jesus is telling us, in those trials, we are to ask God for strength to deliver us from those schemes. In other words, God... In this difficult time that I find myself in, deliver me. One of the best, one of the most beautiful examples of that is in Luke chapter 22, where Jesus actually does this for Peter. In Gethsemane, I believe it is, he, he tells uh, Simon Peter, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. I love this prayer for about 200 reasons. 
Simon, Satan demanded to have you. Satan who is out to destroy people, to keep them from God, and for those who know God, to derail their faith and trust in God. He looks at Peter and he says, Satan is after you and he's, tr- and he's attempting to sift you like wheat in the nights to come. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. I believe it is the author in Hebrews that tells us that Jesus is the one who intercedes for his people to this day. Don't you love that? That even though the devil still attempts to sift God's people like wheat, Jesus is there having their back. And I love the note of confidence that comes up in the last half of this verse. Because we all know that Peter actually does get sifted. Notice that Jesus doesn't actually take him out of his suffering. It seems like he lets Peter get sifted like wheat. But look at the note of confidence in the last verse. But when you have turned again, do you hear the confidence bleeding out of Jesus? Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. I have been praying for you. And when you get back up, do you hear that? Do you hear that? Because that's for you. Some of you are going through such ill and fire in life that you simply have no confidence. Perhaps that's why prayer is so difficult. You don't even know what to say. You don't even know what to believe in. Do you know that you can lean on the confidence of your Messiah who says to you, Satan is going to thrash you, but I have your back. And when you have turned again, turn around and strengthen your brothers. This is a prayer crying out to God, strengthen me in this time of testing. Deliver me from the evil one. And yet God even goes a step further than just mere survival. God doesn't just want you to survive the attacks of the devil. He doesn't just want to preserve you until he comes back. And this is one of the counterintuitive ways that we see about God, but he he wants to make you and fashion you and form you and strengthen you. And have you ever noticed, counterintuitive to everything that we've been taught by the world, that our faith is often strengthened through trial? Perhaps the most deeply through trial? We want our faith maybe to be strengthened by the good stuff in life. It rarely ever works that way, does it? Have you noticed? In fact, James, to go back to James, tells us in James chapter one, count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let, stead- and let steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, our growing in Christ is going at certain times in life to have to do with how we deal with suffering. And Jesus, from the very get-go, tells us how to deal with suffering. Cling to the Father for your strength and your trust. And as you cling to him in those moments, not only will he bring you through the fire, but he'll make you better for it. In fact, it's some of the greatest experiences of God's holy power and presence that we find in the fires of life, don't we? Not out of them. Do you remember Meshach, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace? God never answered their prayers by taking them out, but he stepped into the fires with them, and that is where they had the fullest revelation of their God in that moment, the fourth man in the fire with them in that moment. 
Perhaps some of us are saying, God, take me out of the fire, when really he's right there in the fire with you, preserving you and strengthening you. We just need to recognize that. Lord, what would you have me do? Cling. Cling to me, Lord, as I cling to you. Even when things don't go the way that we plan, and sometimes those, fa- uh, those faulty, messed up, distorted plans are fiery. The fiery tests, like Paul says. God will be in you, uh, will be with you in those times of fire, sometimes even turning them around. Not just for your good, but for others. I remember Joseph being sold into slavery in the book of Genesis, and can you imagine, just after having the dreams that he had, you're gonna rule, and you're gonna be this, and everyone's gonna look up to you, this dream of God, it never materialized, and all of a sudden, he found himself in prison, enslaved, sold into slavery by his own brothers, and then after a period of time, through a bunch of connections and the favor of God, he rose to the second most powerful person in Egypt, face to face with his brothers, and they were cut to, the, cut to the heart. And you remember what he said to them? Genesis chapter 50, 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. If any of these stories, any of these historical accounts should teach us anything about suffering, it is that they are not more powerful than our God who is sovereign. Even like God is not limited to blessing you through his blessing. He can take the fiery darts of the enemy. He can take the worst that the devil can imagine and he can turn it around for your good. He is not limited to his good gifts. He can take anything that the devil can turn against you. He can take any mistake that you have done to yourself. He can take anything that the world has pushed against you and turn it around for your good. What a source of comfort to know that God is absolutely in control even when you are absolutely out of control. Satan throws stuff at you and God chuckles says, oh, well, whatever, I'll turn that around too. The question some of you are asking is, well, you're, you're, you're in the heat of the moment right now and you're asking, well, how's he gonna turn this around? I know that he can, but how is he gonna do it and, you know, when? Because Romans chapter eight, verse 28 through 30, verse that many of you know and some of you have, have clung to rightly. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. It's a very beloved text for many who are going through dark times. It's a source of comfort for many of us because we know that God is able to take anything in our lives and turn it around for our good. But perhaps some of us have an idea of what good is. Have you ever done that? Maybe it was really small, like, oh, I lost my job, I need a better job, Uh, and the Bible says that God works all things together for my good. That would be really good. It's like a dream job in the Caribbean. So I think that's what Romans is talking about. Or I'm single, single sucks. I want, you know, someone who's sweet and, you know, I can cuddle with. Uh, That would be really good. Bible says... All who love God, all things will work together for my good. So God will find, you know, and we just fill, we invest into that word good. 
basically anything that we want. Now, some of those things might happen. They might be true, but aren't we just like a two and a half year old who has their own idea of what's good in life? My daughter recently thought it would be good to stuff the wrong end of a, an iPod charger into an outlet. And her dad thought that that would not be good. She protested. And I don't care. <laughs> There's certain things that I know are better for her. And isn't that like our Heavenly Father? Perhaps you have this idea of what good would be and it doesn't pan out. You know what God believes is good? should just continue to read the text. I have this scripture reading philosophy, never read a Bible verse, read paragraphs. Read paragraphs. He goes on to say, we know that uh, for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. You want to know what God thinks is good for you? He says it right there. All things work together for good, which is according to his purpose and has to do with you being conformed to the image of his son. God's greatest desire is, if I can put this in the, you know, the NLT, the new Lazo translation, <laughs> God is able to take anything that you're going through and use it for his purpose and good which involves you becoming more like Jesus Christ. Sure, he might get you a new job. You might not get a new job for a while. I don't know. He might take away that time of suffering. He might leave you in that time of suffering. I don't know. I don't know any of those questions. I do know that regardless of what happens, he can work all of that stuff out to make you more like his son, Jesus Christ. You might be saying, well, that's great. I mean, I get it. More like Jesus, but what about, what about putting food on the table? What about taking care of my own needs? Like, I wanna be more like Jesus, but I also have these felt needs. Like, can you just give me that? And yes, isn't that the beauty of the Lord's Prayer? Give us our daily bread. We can pray that stuff. But this text, this line is something far more panoramic and soaring. That in the midst of all of those things, in the midst of our needs, in the midst of trials and tribulations and tests, God's highest goal is to make you more like Jesus. And you know why that's good? If you're asking that question, what's that gonna benefit me? Is that we were from the very beginning and by the design of God made in the image of God. We were made to reflect his glory and that is when humanity finds themselves most satisfied and most fulfilled and most filled with joy and most connected to the divine is when they are reflecting that glory back to God when they're living in harmony with the life of their God, who, Acts tells us, in him we live and move and have our being. And sin tainted that image. We're still in the image of God, but it's like a cracked mirror, you know what I'm saying? That's what sin does. You can still see the image, it's just a little distorted. God came not just to forgive you and to stick you in a corner, he came to renew that image. He came to restore that broken image. He came to give it new life and to be conformed to the image of Christ is essentially, in the most simple terms, to be made fully human again, to be made fully alive. If then you have been raised with Christ, 
Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when he appears, you also will appear with him, reflecting glory. That's your, that's your destiny. And he's in the process of doing that right now. And so being conformed to Christ is humanity's highest good and God's greatest gift. That's why Paul would later in Colossians, I'll just read part of it, Colossians chapter uh, one, would say in verse 27, here, listen to this. This is his description of the gospel, verse 27. To, God, uh, to them God, to us, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Mystery was a phrase he used to talk about the gospel. What is it? What is the gospel? Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then he goes on. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, Paul says, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. Paul had of mind that the best gift to humanity was that Christ indwells us and begins to make us more like him. And Paul said, that is what I live for. It's that which I toil for. I will struggle with all of my energy, with all the power that works in me to see everybody that I know looking more and living more and experiencing more of Jesus Christ because that's the best thing we've got going for us. What do you do when trials come your way? That's, your, that's the best thing you've got. And so with that, the Christian has a new lens. We have a different way of looking at our difficulties. The pain index. We have a different way of viewing difficult things that have come upon us, don't we? We look at our situation and our difficulties as something that God can use. That God, our God, who has our back. That if God be for us, who can be against us? Our God is not thwarted by our circumstances, even if we are. And we rest in that. And God can take anything that we're going through and use it to make us more like Christ. To give us a deeper experience of his kingdom. And that's why Paul will go on to say trippy things that maybe at first glance were really weird. Like when he says, we rejoice in our suffering. Maybe you read that and you're like, eh. Paul. Well, here's why. Now you know why. Because he sees the gold at the bottom of that vat of suffering. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given us. See what's going on? Now this is not like some morbid desire of Paul's to love suffering for suffering's sake, right? We don't get up and we're like, oh, I don't have enough money, awesome. I just got hit by a bus. Praise the Lord. <laughs> now we mourn over those things, as we should. Nor is it like some form of stoic religion where we just pretend like it's not affecting us. We bite our, our lip and we just say, I can take this. It's not that either. It's rather being able, through a, a new way of viewing life, because you've been born again by Jesus Christ, being able to see beyond the despair of your situation. What do you see? You see God's power in the midst of suffering. 
you see what Paul described as God's power being manifest in our weaknesses. That somehow we have a God who is able and gets a kick out of showing up most vividly in the times of our deepest need. And in those moments of suffering, you can experience God like you've never known before. He loves to visit the brokenhearted. He loves to visit the lonely. He loves to visit those who have nothing, who don't know where to go and what to do. And his power is made vividly manifest in the midst of that. And so, when we pray, God, lead us out of temptation, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We're simply, spend a lot of time in a roundabout way to say this, we're simply throwing ourselves at the mercy of our God, trusting that he will get us through it. We're asking him a couple things. Lord, spare us from what I can't handle, and if I am going through it, you obviously have a plan for it, so make me more like Jesus. Deliver me, God. Spare me from what I can't handle, and strengthen me and deliver me through the things that, I, that life does bring my way. Things don't always go according to, to plan. But the hope of God's people is that even the worst of events can be used to form us and to find in God joy and peace, salvation. Perhaps some of you, are, you believe that, but for you, it's like a distant reality. You're like, I know what the Bible says. I know that that's all true. My situation is just like so bleak. It's like a, getting stung by a bullet ant. Like I hear the words that you're saying, but they're kind of just going over my head and I'm screaming. I'm just crying right now. Perhaps it's a, it's a distant reality because your situation is far too impossible to handle. You just have to know that your God is not gonna abandon you. Even if it feels like you're alone. Feelings are great servants. And they're horrible masters. And we can learn some things by the way that we feel, but we ought not ascribe to God anything that's true about him based on the way that we feel. Some of you feel alone. Bro, you're not alone. Lady, you're not alone. Psalm 27 says that even when our mother and our father forsakes us, the Lord will take us up. Even when the people who love us the most abandon us, your God will never abandon you. He rather is a tower and a stronghold that the righteous can run into. Run today. You say, well, how, how do I know that he's abandoned me? My mom and dad actually did run out on me. The one person that is most formed what I think of other people has betrayed my trust. How, why should I trust God? In moments where I am suffering and where I need somebody because he already stepped into your place of suffering at the cross. We have a pain scale index of things that were done to us that we've gone through. Christ Jesus has been something be, through something beyond what our minds can uh, have the capacity to measure. When it started in the Garden of Gethsemane, I love how one author described Gethsemane as the deepest meaning of this prayer in the Lord's Prayer. 
Where for Jesus, it was more real than any of us can possibly comprehend. For Jesus to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. And he actually prays that, in a sense. Where Jesus, on the heels of suffering under the weight of sin, the physical agony of the cross, being separated from his Father, from whom he knew for eternity being spit upon, being beaten, being marred, being broken. He faced that, and the Bible tells us that he did it for the joy facing him, that he did it for the Father's will with great resolve, and he did it for tremendous love for the people that he was dying for. Love the way that N.T. Wright put it, and when he described uh, Gethsemane, he said, we therefore have come to grips with the fact that Jesus gave the prayer to his disciples but that when he, Jesus, prayed it himself, the answer was no. Jesus, in a sense, did pray. Lead me not into a time of testing, Father. Deliver me from the evil one. Did he not pray that? If there's any way for the cup to pass from me, God, please do it. If there's any other alternative to redeem humanity, please do it. And yet he couples that part of the Lord's prayer with another part. Yet not my will. Yours be done. And when he held those two prayers side by side, he found that God's will involved him in a unique vocation where he would be the one who was led to the test and he would be the one who was not delivered from evil. And he steps forward with great resolve by the power of the Holy Spirit and he goes to the cross And he was delivered into the hands of evil so that you and I could be delivered from its grip. And he died. And he was buried. And yet, as Peter would say in Acts chapter 2, God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And in a tremendous display of God's power, proving what we have been saying all along, even death was turned around for the good of humanity. And he now sits at the right-hand side of God, offering to anyone who by faith in him want to be a part of his kingdom. And when we believe in him and put our faith and trust in him, you know what happens to us? He indwells us, and all that he has accomplished by his death and resurrection become for us a reality. I love what Paul says in Romans chapter six, verse four. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. We, in a sense, died to ourselves. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And do you see that? All of heaven's resources pointed towards you like a mighty cannon to deliver you from the power and the jaws of evil and death so that you might experience what it's like to be truly human. For some of you, it might just start with a simple prayer. Father, I'm in a situation that I can't handle. Help me. Perhaps you might do that this week, you know, as we've been going through this mini series within a series within a series within a series on the Lord's Prayer. We've been doing that every week. I I don't know if you've been doing that or if that's been uh, helping or blessing you, but we've been praying the Lord's Prayer, trying to memorize it and praying it line by line every day. Have you been doing that? Has it been has it been good? That's been one way that we've been uh, trying to practice this prayer. Another way we've been doing is by rephrasing, by taking a single line. We've been doing this on Sundays. 
and just applying that line to our lives, rephrasing it if need be. And the first Sunday, we actually, you know, we, pray, we broke off together, or excuse me, we prayed all together as one corporate voice, just shouting to our Father who is in heaven. We began to hallow and glorify his name. The second week, we broke off into groups and asked for his kingdom to come uh, to our lives in Santa Barbara as it is in heaven. The next week, uh, we, we uh, prayed liturgically. We read psalms together. That was awesome. Uh, and passages from the scriptures asking for our daily bread and trusting him for taking care of our needs. The week after that, we just took a moment of silence. And we were just quiet, allowing God to minister to us and to show us areas in our lives where we have not forgiven and where we have been forgiven tremendously by God. And in this last one, I wanna do something else. Uh, on your way in here, you got one of these little booklets, just a little journal. Did you get one? Um, this is really simple. I just wanted to write down our prayers today. Some of you have already been doing that. You have like, you're like journal king or queen. Um, you journal everything. Um, that's awesome. Some of you maybe have never done this before in your life. And maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it's something that'll change your prayer life. Britt Merrick and I, myself, used to make fun of journaling all the time, and now we're like journal snobs. Because we realize something. Something that often, it's not unique to journaling, it's just physical activity. Recognize that often when you do something with your body, and that's kind of been the whole point of spiritual disciplines that we've been going through, is that when you, you train your body to do something, it often crystallizes something in the rest of you. Have you noticed this? Like when you confess a sin that maybe you're trying to suppress, when you get it out, when you say it, especially when you say it to somebody, it crystallizes it for you and it like, it's like this confrontation. And out of that flows the, the, this process of freedom. In the same way, I've, I've done this where I've, I've just tried to ignore things I've gone through and I've just not wanted to think about it and then I've opened up a journal and I, I would write down like, Lord, I'm really having a hard time with this or Lord, I did this and I just messed up everything. Lord, I have this sin or Lord, I'm, uh, you know, I, I said this to so-and-so, or Lord, I'm going through this and I can't tell anybody, and it's almost as if the moment I write it down, my heart opens up in vulnerability to God. Because I'm being honest with myself. But then I keep writing, and you can do this too. I begin to confess in a journal. It's just between me and the Lord. Lord, help, help me. I want you to try this today. So worship team comes on up. Uh, they're gonna, we're gonna be singing this song about how our Lord Jesus walks through the storms with us. And I just want you to try it. If it turns out that you know, this isn't for you, that's okay. Just take this as a, a, gift, uh, a gift to you. Use it as a, you know, to keep track of groceries or checkbook. Or, <laughs> do people have checkbooks still? I don't know. Doodle on it during sermons. I don't know. You do whatever you want with it. It's yours. But maybe some of you will find a new way to express your prayer to God. And that's just really what we're trying to do. It's trying to open you up to ways of talking to God. And so as we sing together this morning, as we worship, just open up your journal. Grab a pen from someone if you don't have one of your own. And just think first about two things. One, what is going on in your life that is, is too much for you to handle? Maybe you're ignoring it. Maybe you're scared of it and you don't want to think about it. Write it down. Be courageous, write it down. It's just between you and God. Look at it. 
and begin to hold it up to the Lord and begin to write out your request to God, whatever that may be. Maybe it's just one word, cancer. Sickness, broken relationship, anger, addiction, loneliness, whatever it is, get it on paper. James tells us that through confession, we can actually be healed. That's the first step. Confess it. Bring it before the Lord who cares for you, wants to wrap you into his arms, and then just begin to write out your prayer, Lord. Deliver me. Make me more like you. Deepen my trust and love. Show me your love for myself. Whatever it is, just be honest. And see if he doesn't visit you in the moment. Heavenly Father, we just ask right now, as we tune our eyes towards you, you would reveal some of those difficult places in our own lives. Not to shame us, We know that you're not a God of shame or guilt. We know that you are a comforter. That the Lord, you are our Lord. You are our shepherd. And we shall not want. Thank you that you make us lie down in green pastures. Lead us beside still waters. You restore our souls. God, perhaps that's what some of us need today. We need to be made to lie down in green pastures. So restless so crazy sometimes. We need our good shepherd to to stop us. Sit us on his lap. Might not even talk about you in in this regard very often, but thank you that the the Bible pictures you as a listener. Jesus, you often listened before you spoke the truth. And so God, I pray, today we'd have this deep revelation of our God the listener as we write things down as we pray as we confess to one another we would beyond all doubt understand and realize today that we have the ear of our God I pray from there we would see you as our great deliverer the one who leads us out of the, the sea the parting of the Red Sea and brings us into the promised land Only you can do that. Pray that you would visit us today. In Jesus' name.